When the writing is on the wall. Yep, that's today's title of the message from Dr. John Newfeld. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series in the book of Daniel with attention to Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. All of us have heard the following two expressions. The first one is this, your days are numbered. And the second one is, the writing is on the wall. You know, both of these expressions mean the same thing. These two common expressions found in the English language find their origin in Daniel chapter 5. They refer to an incident that took place in ancient Babylon in the year 539 BC. But what do those two expressions mean? Well, they mean that no matter what you do, you've reached the point of no return. For instance, if you contract an incurable disease and your, and your doctor tells you that you have six weeks to live, you might say, the writing's on the wall for me. Or you might say, my days are numbered. In other words, there's now nothing that you can do to change your future. You can plan no special medical intervention. Doesn't matter if you become healthier in your lifestyle, it's now out of your hands. Your days are short. Now, some people use these expressions to indicate a belief in fate. For them to say that the writing is on the wall is like saying that whatever is meant to happen is going to happen no matter what I do. Some people live that way. They give up on making wise decisions and resign themselves to let life carry them wherever it will. It's called a belief in fate, and it's a horrible way to live. But in Daniel 5, these expressions don't refer to fate at all. After all, we do a great many things that affect a great many outcomes. We're not the helpless victims of fate. Rather, the two expressions mean that God numbers our days and calls us to give an account of our lives at the very time he has determined. When the writing is on the wall, we're out of time and we'll stand before God and he will then judge all of our actions. When the writing's on the wall, there's no time to make amends for our unethical behavior or for our sins. When the writing's on the wall, it's too late. All that's left now is only judgment. Let's begin to read Daniel chapter 5. I'm beginning with verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. I want you to see the incident described here as high drama. Let me give you some background. This event takes place after King Nebuchadnezzar had died. The last king of Babylon, before it fell to defeat to her foes, was a man by the name of Nabonidus. Nabonidus became king through a series of deaths and assassinations in the royal palace. Historians tell us that he was somewhat of a ruthless man who came to power by destroying his enemies and even members of the house of Nebuchadnezzar. Because he had no royal blood, but was rather a commander who had come up under Nebuchadnezzar, he married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar in order to give credibility to his kingship. He had a son with that daughter, and he named him Belshazzar. As Belshazzar became older, his father appointed him king whenever he was gone out of Babylon. Historians tend to call this a co-regency, a time when both a father and a son rule at the same time. But in truth, Belshazzar only ruled when his dad was out of town, and that, most often, when his dad was on an important military campaign. Nabonidus seems to have fired Daniel as a royal advisor, and this turned out to have been a fatal mistake. You see, in the earlier part of his reign, he became involved in the royal court of Media and supported the revolt of a man named Cyrus of Anshan, 
who became the king of Media. You see, Nabonidus was no biblical scholar, for if he had been, or if he had had Daniel by his side, he would have been frightened by a man named Cyrus. 200 years before Nabonidus met Cyrus, there was a Jewish prophet by the name of Isaiah. I want you to listen to what Isaiah predicted. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. That's found in Isaiah 45, verses 1 to 4. You see, without a revelation from God, all men and women make decisions in the dark, and Nabonidus did. The same Cyrus, who was prophesied to break down kingdoms, was supported in his rise to power by a man whom Cyrus was destined to devastate. You know, this same Cyrus, prophesied by Isaiah the prophet, was no sooner king of the Medes that he took over the domains of Media and Persia and was attaining astonishing success on the battlefield. Soon he began to attack the armies of Babylon. And finally, in desperation, Nabonidus marched out against him to stop his advance and left his son Belshazzar as king in Babylon in his absence. Nabonidus was defeated by Cyrus at the Battle of Opus and retreated to Arabia, leaving Babylon wide open to Cyrus. The only last line for defense for Babylon was his son, Belshazzar, who was unaware of what had gone on, and now his father had been defeated. And on the day when the Medo-Persian troops surrounded Babylon, Belshazzar, completely unaware of either the word of God or about what had just occurred in Opus, and overwhelmed with his high position of leadership, cocky and self-confident that nothing could ever defeat him, called for a party. It was his way of showing his complete lack of concern for Cyrus. The Median and Persian army may be attempting to lay a siege on Babylon, but there was no concern whatever. The walls of Babylon were far too thick to knock down, and there was enough food in Babylon to last for 20 years. Let the Medo-Persian army rot outside our walls. Let's party. And they did. Oh, how they did. And that night, sometime in September of 539 BC, Cyrus diverted the waterway that led underneath the walls of the city of Babylon. This reduced the water level entering the city and exposed a pathway under the walls. And that night, sometime in September, thousands of Persian troops, wading in water up to their waists, were entering into the city through the waterway underneath the walls of Babylon, climbing up from the waterway and infiltrating the city. No one in Babylon was aware that their utter defeat was soon before them. Soon Persian troops were everywhere in the city, and because the Babylonian army was not anticipating this and had not prepared themselves for a battle, the city was already taken before the battle had even begun. The writing was on the wall for the city when the events we read about in this chapter take place, and they didn't even know about it. Foolish leaders of Babylon were in the palace toasting their gods and their unstoppable power. It must have been quite a scene. So let's read Daniel 5, 1-4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. 
Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. I want you to imagine the scene. The Medo-Persian army is thought to be outside the wall and Belshazzar holds a feast. He's laughing. He's safe. No one can touch him. He's confident in the power of the flesh, and then in his drunken bravado, he finds a new way to entertain his guests. He'll bring out the sacred articles of the temple of God in Israel. And here was a defeated God. The God of the Jews was nothing against Babylon. After all, who has ever defeated Babylon? Not even the one true God can touch the nobles of Babylon. So this cocky and self-assured and already condemned man drinks from sacred vessels of Yahweh as if he's spitting in the eye of the true and living God and drinks to the gods of Babylon. After all, Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, was able to defeat the city of Jerusalem and God did nothing to him. So why can't he take it one step further and desecrate the sacred vessels? Stop and think about that for a moment and what that might mean to us today. How many of you know that it is possible to exhaust the patience of God? Many of us have misunderstood God all of our lives. We look around ourselves and we see all manner of people, and we included. We're doing things that are an affront to God, but God seems to be doing nothing at all. So we conclude that God must let things slide by. And so we mock the living God not knowing that the writing may already be on the wall. So is God really silent, or is he offering each of us time to acknowledge our sin and repent? Well, Dr. Neufeld will address these questions in just a moment. Just a reminder that this month we're issuing our August and September edition of Truth and Life magazine. This issue will focus on culture. The shifting sands of culture always have direct implications for God's people and for the church at large. So how do we live in a society which increasingly embraces the values and lifestyles contrary to those reflected in Scripture? And how do we continue to share the truth of God's Word to those who seem to be opposed? Well, all of this and much more is in this issue of Truth and Life. So make sure to ask for your free subscription to Truth and Life magazine today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or signing up online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. All manner of books, articles, and conversations have been had about the silence of God. He seems to do nothing as one home after another ends in divorce and as children suffer through selfishness, violence, or sexual misadventure of a parent. He seems to do nothing when theft or adultery, hatred, Murder, wars, greed, deceit, and all manner of evil abounds all around us. He seems to do nothing when the nations of the earth make laws to mock the living God. And he seems to do nothing as people take on godly pastors around the world, persecute them, drive them out of office, or throw them into prison. Heaven seems to remain silent. But is it really silence? 
Or is God waiting for us to come to our senses and to repent? Is God graciously patient or is he silent? Think about it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 4-5. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans tells us that we're storing up wrath by refusing to repent. And this can happen to individuals, and it can happen to whole nations. I want you to imagine a dam holding back a huge lake. The lake is not very full, and the dam easily holds back the thousands of gallons of water pressing hard against it. But then the water begins to rise, and with every centimeter it rises, thousands of pounds per square inch are pressing up against the concrete of the dam. If the water keeps on rising, and with it the pressure keeps building, it can be that the dam will break even while everything appears so serene. See, that's what our sins are doing. The dam is the kindness, tolerance, and patience of God. The water is the wrath of God. We're on the dry side of the dam, and all seems the same, no matter what we do. The rising of the water is in keeping with each year that you and I live. Every year you live, you store up more wrath. If you live to be 85 years old and don't repent, it's no advantage to you. In fact, it would have been better that you had died in infancy. If you resist God's kindness, the day will come when that kindness breaks away and wrath sweeps over you with inconceivable fury so that if you were the toughest or meanest, nastiest devil of hell, you would no more resist him than a spider's web could resist a falling boulder. It's no advantage for anyone to live a long life outside of Christ. All we're doing by living long is storing up wrath. If that day of God's wrath ever comes upon you, you'll found to have exhausted the kindness of God. That's what Belshazzar found. But how? How did he, how did he do that? And how do we do that? In some ways, this story is puzzling. I mean, why did Nebuchadnezzar receive so many opportunities that gave him a chance to humble himself? And Belshazzar apparently did not. Why does Daniel 4 have a happy ending and and this chapter seems to end in tragedy? How do we exhaust the patience of God? But how quickly we exhaust the patience of God when we no longer listen to the voice of God. See, there was no place in Belshazzar's court for Daniel. He'd been replaced. I know he was an 80-year-old man by now and his advice was no longer sought. Nebuchadnezzar had listened to Daniel. Belshazzar had not. See, we live in a country that's much the same. You know, many years ago, our family did a trip across Canada, and we found how important the church was in our history. As in every town, the largest building in our cities in every single town was a church. There was a time when the message of Christ was heard everywhere throughout this country, and now it seems that it's viewed as an unwelcome intrusion. No one in government or the media or in positions of power seems to be listening to the servants of God. Every special interest group receives a listening ear, but when the church speaks or when God's servant speaks or when the Bible speaks, at times it's met by howls of protest. I mean, how dare we speak? How dare we become involved? How intolerant of them to even open their mouths? We live in a country where it seems that the wicked might speak, but the servants of God are expected to hold their tongue. And I ask you, 
Will Canada exhaust the patience of God? Well, perhaps. I don't know at what point in time God begins to write on the wall, but that event comes to anyone and even to nations that will not repent. So we exhaust the patience of God when we no longer listen to his word or his people. How else do we exhaust the patience of God? Well, we do it when we profane that which is holy. And that's what Belshazzar did. He profaned God's name. You know, some years ago when I was pastoring at a church, I was called out in the middle of the night because the church building had a break-in and a theft. And those were the days before we had cell phones, and I had to go across the street to make a phone call. And and I explained to the owner of a convenience store that I needed to make a phone call. Could I use his phone? Our church building had been robbed, and and he was an Indo-Canadian man with a very heavy accent. And it was clear he was a new immigrant and had not been in Canada long. And he looked at me in amazement. He said, you mean someone would rob a God house? And I explained to him that it happened all the time. And he looked at me as if to say, what kind of a land is this? Now, I know we don't have holy articles like the temple articles today. In fact, the church buildings are not the temple. We, the people of God, are the temple. We are the church, not the building. So what does it mean to profane that which is holy? See, many things in the Bible are called holy. God is called holy. The Sabbath is called holy. God's people are called holy. Jerusalem is called the holy city. The temple is called holy. The articles in the temple were called holy. The offerings that were brought were holy. But interestingly enough, when Moses stood before the burning bush in Exodus 3 verse 5, he was told, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Well, now, all that Moses was standing in was a desert. No doubt it was the home of wild animals, and nothing around him looked special. But that place was a place of encounter with the holy God. And here's the point. Wherever we meet God is holy. And the great problem in a society like ours is that it seems that nothing is holy. The Lord Jesus himself is sometimes no longer regarded as holy. Men and women think nothing of using his holy name to curse and swear. The Bible is often mocked and even ignored. See, we can exhaust the patience of God by refusing to listen to his word or his servants or by profaning that which is holy when we boast in the God that human hands have made. These are the gods of wood and stone. They're the gods that human beings make, gods of our own understanding, comfortable illusions. With these, we're secure that nothing will ever harm us. I mean, we have money, we we have medicine, we have science on our side, we have education, we have an economy that will always last. We have the solutions for every single human problem. With these, we boast that we will always be fine. Nothing can harm us. Let's now read Daniel 5, verses 5 to 6. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And here we have the origin of our statement, the writing is on the wall. And here, at this moment of judgment, Belshazzar, to his amazement, is about to find that when the writing is on the wall, God breaks through his illusions of security and his fleshly confidence. Can't you see Belshazzar with wine-reddened eyes and a mind swirling with drunkenness, guests partially clad from their orgy-filled party, suddenly interrupted and filled with horror? 
The king's knees start knocking together. All the guests stand motionless, and everyone is pointing. The orchestra stops playing. The waiters stopped waiting, and the dancing girls are no longer observed. God has invaded the room. Talk about an interruption. See, in our next broadcast, we're going to discover what the writing on the wall meant and what results it brought. But today, notice only that the day of God's patience had run out for Belshazzar and had ran out for Babylon. And for all of us, that's the lesson that we must learn. My dear listener, are you ignoring God? Are you ignoring his gospel, the offer of grace that he gives you in the cross? Does his pleading and his warning seem to you a matter that will last forever and that you are given the freedom to make the decision on your timetable and not on his? Hear me, act today, repent, and be grateful that God has given you this day. Know that this is the day, now is the hour of salvation. And also for our land. Don't criticize our land, but pray for it and ask that the eyes and the hearts of our land would be opened to hear the living God and respond to his voice. John, I love that expression, the writing is on the wall, because it it reminds me that so much of what we say and the origin of so many of our expressions really comes from the Word of God. Yeah, isn't it interesting, Ben, that there are so many thought systems that we have that come from the Bible? Our whole culture really comes from a biblical basis. I'm not saying that we were all Christian. We weren't, and it was always a pagan culture. But the influence of the Bible and of Christian thinking is everywhere around us. It's it's just uh, overwhelming to think of. Yeah, and, and something else you mentioned uh, about the writing being on the wall for the nations. Perhaps the writing is on the wall for our nation? Yeah, I think every nation will encounter a day of judgment, not only people, but the nation as a whole. And nations will find that either they will repent and experience a revival, a renewed interest in the things of God, or if they don't do that, it will be judgment. And so uh, that's why I would call for God's people not to, you know, not to speak critically of our nation, but to plead earnestly to the Lord that there might be a new openness to the gospel, uh, because failure of that will result in the ruin of our nation. There is a day when the, when the writing truly is on the wall. Uh, every nation has come to terms with that. Ours will as well. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We're well on our way to reaching our 2016 target of 500 monthly partners through our Partner to Tell campaign. In fact, I think there is an excellent chance we can hit this important partnership target much sooner than December. Monthly partners are essential to the daily Bible teaching programs that you hear every day. Essential to sustain them. Essential in allowing us to expand the opportunity to reach even more people across Canada with Bible teaching you can trust. So please consider if this might be an opportunity for you to join this ministry in these critical ways partner to tell today and help us lead people ever closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca. And thank you so much 
in advance.